We are going to be in John chapter 11 this morning. So you should have a pew Bible with you. The black one is the one that the translation we're going to be using this morning. I believe it's page 953 in that pew Bible if you want to open it up and read. And if you're able, I want to ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word this morning. All right, we don't stand to read God's word because we worship the Bible. We stand to read the Bible because we worship the God of the Bible. And we want to hear from him this morning. So page 953, we're going to be in John chapter 11, looking at verses 17 through 27. So I'm going to read this, and then after I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God, okay? It'll be underlined up there for you. You can just follow along the rhythms that we've been doing so far. So here's verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for, for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, and here's our hope. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for the truth and the hope that is Easter Sunday, that you are alive. Death could not contain you. You rose from the grave and you have sealed our salvation before the Father. So thank you for your sacrifice, but we rejoice in the hope that is Easter Sunday. And may we not leave this place without hearing a divine word from you from your scriptures this morning. So come and meet with us, be with us. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's not every day that you get to witness history, but that's exactly what I got to do on June 10th of 2016. This was the date of Muhammad Ali's funeral in Louisville, Kentucky, where I lived at that point in time. And to say that this funeral was a big deal would be an understatement, all right? So there were 15,000 people that gathered in the Kentucky Yum Center to celebrate his life. Hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets for his funeral procession as they drove his body through the city of Louisville. People placing flowers on the cars, holding up signs showing how much Muhammad Ali meant to them. Millions of dollars went into his funeral. My sister-in-law worked for a flower company in Louisville at this point in time. And it, they are the ones that did all the flower arrangements for his funeral. And it was an enormous deal, like months of work that went into this particular date, thinking through their arrangements and everything that was going on. And of course, this was a big deal because Muhammad Ali was the beloved son of Louisville, Kentucky. But outside of Louisville, a place that he was dearly loved, Muhammad Ali could be a very divisive person and individual. 
He, you either loved him or you hated him. It seemed like if you're outside of our city, there didn't really seem to be anywhere in between. He's regularly in the headlines for things like his political and religious affiliations. But obviously the venue that he created the most chaos in was the sport of boxing. It made these big audacious claims about him as a boxer. Many of them that you know, you would recognize in hearing them. Here are a few of my favorites that he said. And you can just sort of sense Muhammad Ali's, his whole demeanor and his character as, he's, as I'm reading these off. He, he said, I float like a butterfly, but I sting like a bee. You know what I'm saying? I should be a postage stamp. That's the only way I'll ever get licked. You know what I'm saying? I've wrestled with alligators. I've tussled with the whale. I've done handcuffed lightning, thrown thunder in jail. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Like you can just see Muhammad Ali, he's doing his bounce and he's got his arms up. Like you can feel this. And so a reporter approached Muhammad Ali one time about these big audacious claims that he made about himself. And here's what he said. He said, bragging is when a person says something and can't do it, but I do what I say. At Storyline, we've been working through the seven I am statements of Jesus over the last six weeks. We've heard Jesus make these really big, bold, decisive claims about who he is, that he's the bread of life, that he's the light of the world, that he's the gate, that he's the good shepherd. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, that he's the true life, and you can do nothing apart from him. As Jesus is making these claims about himself, he's saying that there's no way to the Father except through Jesus himself. That he's our provision and that he's our protection in this life. That he's the genuine life source that apart from him, you can't take your next breath. That he's God in the flesh here walking here on earth. And these are big, audacious claims that Jesus makes about himself, leading some to even want to put him to death. But here's the thing, bragging is when a person says something, they can't do it, but Jesus does what he says. And there's nothing, a bigger claim than what we see this morning of what Jesus calls himself the resurrection and the life. So here's what I want to do this morning. This is the context that Jesus is speaking this into. It's a very unique situation, all right? One of Jesus' closest friends is on his deathbed. He has some followers of his that have come to Jesus and said, hey, Lazarus is sick. If you come to him, come to him. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm gonna wait. So a few days go by. Jesus, after a few days, tells his disciples, hey, we're going to go to Bethany. We're going to visit Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And by the way, Lazarus is dead. Now, they're, they're skeptical about going back to Jerusalem. Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem at this point in time because Jesus has been threatened to be stoned. And so the disciples are hesitant, but they go with Jesus anyway. And as Jesus is approaching Bethany, it says that the, the Bible tells us that Martha, one of the sisters of Lazarus, comes and approaches Jesus as he's coming towards them. And this is where Jesus makes the declaration that I am the resurrection and I am the life. Now, this is an incredibly bold declaration because Jesus is claiming power over both the physical and the spiritual. Jesus is claiming power over the physical through his proclamation that he is the resurrection. 
There was a common held belief in the Jewish culture that there was going to be a resurrection of the dead from the, from the physical grave at this future point in time. And Jesus isn't just saying that he's the power in order to resurrect somebody. He's saying he is the power by which resurrection happens. He is the power over the physical. But not only that, he's also the power over the spiritual. You see, when Jesus says that he is the life, he's using a word called Zoe instead of bio. Zoe is soul life. Bio is physical life. So what Zoe is, it's the highest expression, the deepest experience that you can have in this life. And Jesus is saying, I am the Zoe life. I am the soul life. I am the spiritual life. So he's laying claim not only over the physical through proclaiming that he's the resurrection, he's also laying claim over power over the spiritual. And these are big, these are audacious claims. Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to experience the power of the resurrection over the physical, then you come to me. If you want to experience the the power of the spiritual, you want to have the highest experience they can ever have in this life, then you come to me. I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus isn't bragging here because he backs up his claims. Jesus does what he says. Before the crowd that has gathered to mourn the death of Lazarus, Jesus calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And after four days, what is commonly held to believe that the spirit has finally abandoned the body because of the decay that is happening to the body, the stone is rolled away. Lazarus comes out with all of his garments still on, but there's no decay to his body. He has full lungs in his, he has full breath in his lungs and he walks out fully alive. Jesus backs up his claims because Jesus does what he says. He is the resurrection and he's the life. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to consider this claim that Jesus makes about I am the resurrection and the life. And I want to wrestle with the realities, the truths, the good news for us that Jesus is the resurrection and he's the life. We'll unpack these three realities and then we'll end with some application. All right. So here's the first one. If you're a note taker, you can, this is the first note. All right. That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It's life-changing news. It's life-changing news. Now, you may be saying, hey, it's Easter Sunday, Josh. Like, of course, you're going to come and tell me that the resurrection is this life-changing news. Now, stick with me a little bit, all right? Because there's a prevailing question in humanity that is the question about life after death. Job 14.14 wrestles with this question. It says, if a man dies, shall he live again? We've wrestled with this idea of life after death since the first experience of death here in this world. Like it doesn't matter what culture or country you're coming from. It doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter if you're poor or if you're wealthy. We've all wrestled with the question about life after death. It's something that we all have wrestled with. It's something that we all wrestle in our hearts and our minds, even with those that we love. We wrestle with, is this it? Like when we die, is that the end? Is the point of birth and death, is that, is that all that there is? Or is there something else beyond this life? Is there something bigger? Is there something that has purpose beyond, that gives us meaning beyond this life? I think 
One of the pastors, um, R.C. Sproul, he kind of puts all of this compacted into a really good quote. He says this, life is so precious that there beats within every human heart a hope that there will be victory over the grave. We all wrestle. We all have these longings that are going inside of us that R.C. Sproul just said. And when I read Martha's interaction with Jesus as he is approaching Bethany, I feel the longings of these words and her words to Jesus. There's this disappointment as she speaks to Jesus, but there's also this tinge of hope. So here's what she says. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, you feel that? If you had been here, like I've seen what you've done in your ministry. Like you've healed people. You've freed the demon possessed. You've healed the sick. Jesus, if you would have just been here, you could have saved my brother. This disappointment that's going on deep within Martha's voice. But at the same time, there's a tinge of hope. Because look at the rest of his, her statement. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You hear it? Like maybe, just maybe since Jesus is here, he can do something about my brother's death. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, because Jesus is here, he can have the final say over the grave of my brother. The conversation goes on. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day, that Jewish belief that there will be a final resurrection on judgment day. And then this is where Jesus declares, he speaks in, I am the resurrection in the life. Now, I want to wrestle with the last two sentences here in our passage. It says, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Like, has Jesus gone crazy? It seems like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. If I live, then I will never die. But even if I do die, I will continue to live. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, here's what I think Jesus is saying. That if you are in Jesus, if you are in Christ, then death will not have the final say over your life. What Jesus is saying is that he offers a life that cannot be killed by physical death. In one sense, Jesus is saying that those who believe in him will never, will never die. In another sense, they may physically die, yet they, they continue to live. Because Jesus is the Zoe life. He's the soul life. See, Zoe is the more noble word because the physical cannot harm it. So what Jesus is declaring here is that his eternal life, it gives his people at the very moment that they believe this eternal life, then death cannot touch. Physical death cannot harm it. And it is something that secures us in Jesus. Even if we die, we continue to live. Now, I would imagine that Martha is kind of just like, what in the world are you talking about? I still think it's still a really difficult thing to grasp. And so as I was wrestling with this, I'm trying to think of an illustration that kind of depicts what Jesus is saying. And there was a pastor in Philadelphia. His name is Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And I think he put it so well, all right? So this is a pastor that had lost his wife while his daughter was still really young. 
And so as he's trying to wrestle with the loss of his wife and process it while also helping his young little daughter process the loss of her mother, he is trying to wrestle and think through, how do I explain this reality? And so as he was driving down the road one day, there was a moving truck that passed by their car. And as the moving truck passed by their car, the shadow, it went right over their car as well. And so as this pastor is thinking about what has just happened, something hits him. And so he looks over at his daughter and he says something like this. Would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? His daughter, wrestling and thinking through this, said, by the shadow, of course. That can't hurt us at all. And Dr. Barnhouse replied, right. If the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you are fine. Well, it was only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She's actually alive, more alive than we are right now. And that's because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of death hit Jesus. And because death crushed Jesus and we believe in him, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. And listen, and the shadow of death is but my entrance into glory. If you're in Jesus, death doesn't have the final say over you. It's only a shadow. And because it's only a shadow and Jesus took the full weight of the truck hitting you, of hitting him, we now get to live without the threat of death. Like it has no say on you. And listen, this is life changing. Like this completely reorients your life. If the answer to the question is this all that there is between birth and death, if the answer is yes, then our orientation is that we live out of fear. That we... we are people that are constantly hoarding all the things in this life because we want to make them best use of our time. That we're, we're protecting and we're securing all the things that we have in this life because we want to safeguard it in order to make the most of our time. We shelter and protect. We look over our shoulder because everything in this life would then be a threat to the very short amount of time that we have in this life. But listen, if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, it makes zero sense to live in this way. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we can live out of a place of confidence and hope and longing and trust that we are impenetrable because of Jesus. There's nothing that can touch you. There's a old song Christ the Lord is risen today. And the last line of the last stanza says this, made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. What is the author of this song saying? It's saying it's a taunt against the haunts of death. It's saying that bring on the crosses and bring on the graves. The lower you take me, the higher I fly. Kill me and I'll be made better than I was before because Jesus has secured me and he saved me and nothing can touch me. That is life changing. That's the hope that we have in the resurrection and the life in Jesus. Jesus offers eternal life that cannot be touched by the physical because he is the Zoe, the soul life, and nothing can touch it. Nothing can kill it. We are in Jesus, secured in him. Nothing can touch us. So first, the reality of the resurrection and the life is that it's life-changing. But the second is that it's comforting. It's comforting. So the story continues. 
after Jesus' interaction with Martha, John tells us that Martha goes and sends Mary to Jesus. And what's fascinating is that both Martha and Mary say the exact same words to Jesus as they approach him. Here's what Mary says, same as Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But what's even more fascinating to me is Jesus' response to both is different. With Martha, he gives declaration, he gives truth. But with Mary, he gives his emotions. John, John tells us that Jesus, he wept and that he was both deeply moved. As Mary and those that were with her approached Jesus in tears. And I think both of these statements portray a different emotion that Jesus was feeling at this point in time. So let's look at the emotion that stems from Jesus weeping. The Bible tells us that Mary and those who are with her, they approach Jesus in tears. And Jesus responds with the words, where have you put him? Where's Lazarus laying? And so to which they respond, Lord, come and see. And this is where the shortest verse in all of the Bible, yet packed with meaning, Jesus wept. Now, when the Bible says that Jesus wept, he's not just talking about a couple of tears that trickled down his cheek. No, it's talking about like an ugly cry. You know what I'm saying? Like whenever the body shakes and you can't speak words, like that's the type of emotion that the Bible is portraying about Jesus when Mary and the crowd come with him and he's approached about the death of Lazarus. He's ugly crying. And the reason that he's ugly crying is because the Bible tells us that Lazarus was the one that Jesus loved. The only other person that the Bible speaks of is John himself in John's gospel. So Jesus viewed Martha, he viewed Mary, and he viewed Lazarus as family here on earth. And so as he sees Martha, as he sees Mary approaching him, as he sees the crowds and they're in tears, Jesus is overwhelmed with the loss of his friend. He's mourning, he's overcome with sadness, and he gives this to Mary as his response to her question, but it's not the only emotion that he gives to her. We also see that Jesus was deeply moved. John tells us that not only was Jesus deeply saddened by the death of Lazarus, but he was also enraged. Standing before the tomb of Lazarus, John says, then Jesus was deeply moved again. Now, I believe that the Bible is without error. The theological way to say it is that it's infallible and it's inerrant. But there are times, infrequent as they may be, that I think translators got it wrong from the original language to the English language. And I think this is one of those few spots. Because every Bible scholar and every commentator, when they come to these words deeply moved, they said it would have been better translated that he was outraged or that he was furious or that he was bellowing with anger. Now, if you look at the story, Jesus isn't upset or angry with the person, is he? So if he's upset and he's angry, what is he angry at? I think he's angry at the presence of death. He's angry at the presence of death. Like Jesus doesn't look at Mary and say, that's just the way that things are. That's just the way it works. Like you better get used to it and just embrace it because everyone dies. And the sooner that you embrace that reality, the better it's going to be for you. No, that's not what Jesus does here. He, he's enraged. 
He's faced with our worst enemy, which is death, which is taking his, one of his closest friends here on earth. And he's mourning and he's enraged by the presence of death in this world that he spoke into existence. And he gives his anger to Mary as well. I experienced both of these realities back in 2016 as well. So in a matter of two weeks, I had to do two different funerals. The first one, was for one of the matriarchs of the church that I was a part of at that point in time. Her name was Elsie. She was 79, and she just experienced a stroke. And so the week leading up to her funeral, I spent time with her husband, John. I spent time with her family, just loving, caring, and being there with them. And I heard countless stories about how just joyful of a person Elsie was. That when she walked into her room, she just made the whole room uh, it felt much more lightful. You know what I'm saying? Like the smiles came on your face, like belly laughs happened in her presence because of just who she was. I heard about stories of how her and John would just hop in the car and they'd drive off for the weekend and they didn't know where they were going, but they went with some friends and they had this amazing trip that would be out of the weekend. Then I also heard about how they would go on these camping trips with their family and how they would just tell these stories around the campfire and Elsie was just such a delight. And as I'm at this funeral, as I'm leading this funeral, I just feel the weight of her loss with her family. Like the depth of sadness that Elsie's not here anymore. The things that only Elsie could draw out of us as family, she's gone. And it's almost like those pieces of me are gone as well. Like you are overwhelmed by the sadness of this family. And then in less than a week time frame, I had to do a funeral for another young couple that was in our church who lost their baby to a miscarriage at 25 weeks. It was too large for her to pass just naturally, so she had to go to the hospital and actually deliver her baby who was passed. And there was sadness at this funeral, absolutely. But the thing that I felt a little bit more was actually anger. This was not how it was supposed to be. I mean, at 40 weeks, this family was supposed to be holding and caressing and kissing and snuggling a full, mature, healthy baby. But instead, they had to bury their child in a shoebox because there wasn't a coffin that was made small enough for their baby. I was enraged because it reminded me of the two miscarriages that my wife and I had had just a few years before that. This is not how life was intended to be. And I felt the anger deep inside of me. I wasn't mad at any person, but I was mad at the presence of death. And here's how this is comforting, all right? That Jesus gives his emotions to Mary as his response tells us something about Jesus. It tells us that Jesus was fully human. Yes, Jesus is fully God. There's never been a point in time that he did not exist. He was God in the flesh. There is no way that we have life apart from Jesus. But listen, Jesus was fully human. He wasn't partially human. He was fully human. That mind, soul, and will, Jesus fully took on the human experience. He had a real human body. He grew physically. He became hungry. He became tired. He became weary. He went to the bathroom. You know what I'm saying? Like he had the full human experience. <laughs> he was fully human. And because Jesus was fully human, there's a couple of things that I think speak into us in 
exactly what we get out of Jesus with him being fully human. First is this, Jesus understands you. He gets you. He's not a God that's off out in space that doesn't experience what you're experiencing in this life. Jesus put on human flesh. He knows exactly what you're going through because he lived this life as well. He understands you. He gets you. We have a God that's not off in space that's like, hey, good luck. No, he came and put on human flesh and he walked through everything that we went through. Hebrews 4 puts it like this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, meaning that Jesus experienced our weaknesses, amen, but who has been tempted in every way as we are yet was without sin. You see, when we feel sadness and we will, when we feel anger and other human emotions, we can rest in the fact that we know and love a God who gets what we're going through. Isn't that comforting, church? But even beyond that, it also means that Jesus can fully redeem us. God became one of us so that we could become like him. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, his second coming, which he's coming, church, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. You see, it's speaking of Jesus' purity here, but it's also encompassing his perfect resurrected body. And every aspect of us will be redeemed or healed because Jesus took on human flesh. He was fully human. Some ancient forefathers of the Christian faith put it like this, what is not assumed is not healed. Another Ancient father said, our Lord Jesus Christ, who did through his transcendent love become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. That is our hope and that is a reality, church. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So here's what this means. You don't have to sort through your emotions alone. You don't have to sort through your emotions alone. God gives us emotions in order to drive us to himself. This means that God isn't put off by your sadness. He's not put off by your anger. He's not put off by your shame, by your fear, by your guilt, or even by your hurt. But rather, he gives you these emotions in order that you be driven to him because he's the only one that can heal your broken heart. So you can find comfort in him. You don't have to sort through your emotions alone. You have a God who understands you and he gets you. But you also can rest in the hope that you're gonna be fully redeemed. Jesus is alive because he's the resurrection and the life. Because Jesus became fully human through his resurrection, we will be fully healed. So here's what this means. Like keep going, keep persevering, keep believing. Jesus didn't give us the promise that life was going to get easier by coming to him, but he gave us the promise that we would have a better life in him. So listen, keep going. If you're in Christ, death cannot touch you. You are fully alive. You have the Zoe life, the soul life that cannot be taken from you. You have a God that understands you. He's going to fully redeem you. So keep going. There's life in no one else. Keep going. He's the resurrection and he's the life. So Jesus, him being the resurrection and the life, it's life changing. It's also comforting. But listen, church, it's also costly. It's also costly. 
After Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, John reports to us, so from that day on, they plotted to kill him. What we see throughout the New Testament is that Jesus is very discerning, isn't he? I mean, one of the best examples of this is Jesus healing the paralytic. So the paralytic is brought to Jesus as he's surrounded by the crowds in the house. They have to tear open a hole in the roof and lower Jesus down, or lower this man down, the paralytic down. And Jesus speaks over this man, your faith has healed you and your sins are forgiven. Now, what does it say about the crowds? It says the crowds were thinking this. Why does he speak like this? And who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, it seems that this is actually things that are going and being spoken in their hearts and their minds rather than words that are speaking, being spoken out loud because here's Jesus' response. Why are you thinking these things in your heart? You see, Jesus is discerning. He knows what's going on inside of us in our human experience, including our thoughts. We also know that Jesus has just escaped at the end of John chapter 10 from the crowds trying to stone him. He's just said that he's the gate and he's the good shepherd. And that at the very end of the chapter, it says they were trying to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. By seizing him, their plan was to stone him for the things that he was proclaiming about himself. So Jesus knows that they're going to plot his death. Jesus knew that by calling Lazarus out of the grave, it, it would send him into it. So what happens? Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave and simultaneously Jesus proves that he's the resurrection and the life, but he also signs his own death warrant. Knowingly. He knew what the result would be by him declaring himself as the resurrection and the life, and then calling Lazarus out of the grave. And in less than a week's time, the crowds move from hailing Jesus as king to clamoring for his death. See, Jesus is arrested by betrayal. He's unjustly tried. He's whipped with 39 lashes. He's mocked with a crown of thorns. Jesus is ridiculed while he's hanging on the cross as they lay down uh, lots for his garments. He's abandoned by his father and Jesus is killed where his, he uses his last breath, literally. <gasps> it is finished. His last words hanging on the cross. Listen, Jesus endured all of this to call you out of the grave by name. He's not just speaking of Lazarus here. You can insert your name as well. He called you out of death knowing that it would send him into it in your place. But Jesus, he does what he says. So you see all the way back in John chapter two, Jesus called his shot. At the cleansing of the temple, Jesus made this proclamation, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his own body. And on Friday, Jesus went into the grave, but Sunday was coming. It was three days, those three days, they were coming. And on that morning, the same Mary of our story runs to the tomb. And you know what she's doing? She's weeping. 
Just as Jesus was doing at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus, or Mary is weeping over the loss of her friend Jesus as well as her Savior. And as she's weeping at the absence of Jesus at his tomb, she hears a voice call from behind her, woman, why are you crying? Who is that that you are seeking? And Mary, thinking that it's a gardener that's behind her, mutters a response. And then she hears a name, her name called by only one person that calls her name this way, Mary. And the Bible says that she stands up, she turns around, and she clings to Jesus. Because he's the resurrection and the life. He was fully alive. Jesus does what he says. He's the resurrection and the life. It's not an arrogant claim that Jesus is making because Jesus can back it up. You see, like Ali, it's only bragging if you say it and can't do it, but Jesus does what he says. And because Jesus does what he says, he can change your life. He can comfort you in your brokenness. And he's willing to do it all at the cost of his own life. So listen, as we've been wrestling through these seven different I am statements throughout the gospel of John, there's really just been two applications for every single sermon that we've done. The first one is for those who maybe have believed already. And the call is to remain. Remain in Jesus. Like cling to Jesus as Mary stood up and turned around and cling to Jesus. The word cling is like, it's a death grip. Like you can't get She has this steel tight grip on Jesus. Remain in Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Like he's given us his word that we can come and saturate ourselves in his truth. He's removed all barriers to where we can come and speak to him without any barriers whatsoever in prayer. That he's given us the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us in order to empower us to live the life that he's called us to live. So listen, Christian, remain. Abide. You can do nothing apart from Jesus. But the second application is more for those who are still wrestling with who Jesus is, who he claims to be. The call is to believe. After what Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life, he turns to Martha and he says, do you believe this? So maybe you're coming in this morning and like that's you, you're wrestling and you're doubting. You're like, I just don't know about all of this. That God would leave his place in heaven and come put on human flesh. That he would walk as a human in this life and experience what I experience. That there, he died and that there was a physical resurrection. Like, I just don't know if I really believe this. You have a lot of doubts. Well, here's what I want to say to you. You're actually in really good company. You're in great company. Because at the very beginning of John chapter 11, we hear from one of Jesus' disciples who's often associated with doubt. You see, upon hearing that they were headed back to Jerusalem from Jesus, where Jesus was threatened to be stoned, Thomas, one of the, one of the disciples, speaks a really big game. He said, let's go too, so that we may die with him. But what happens on that Friday night is that this Thomas when push comes to shove, he flees with the others, other disciples at the threat of his own life. In fact, when he's told that Jesus is alive, that he's a resurrected from the grave, here's Thomas's words. If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side. Listen, I will never believe. 
This is one of Jesus' disciples, those who have followed him for the last three and a half years. But here's the good news for us. Jesus is extremely patient with Thomas. And listen, he's really patient with you too. Here's Jesus' response to Thomas. He appears, he lets a whole week pass after Thomas has made this declaration that he will never believe. Jesus approaches Thomas as he appears to his disciples again, and he says this, because Jesus is discerning, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. There's a, a picture that has been painted of this whole reality. And the picture is Jesus actually reaching out to Thomas to pull his hand in, to put it into the scars in his hands and to put his hand into the side where Jesus was pierced as he hung on the cross. Listen, Jesus is extremely patient. He's extremely patient with our doubts. He's extremely patient with our insecurities. He's extremely patient with us as we wrestle about who he is. But listen, Jesus is extremely patient. And we know that from Thomas's response here. He says, my Lord and my God, but it does not exclude correcting. Because Jesus doesn't just take Thomas's hands and put it into the scars in his hands or into the hole in his side. Jesus says, stop doubting and believe. Because you have seen me, you have believed, and blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Listen, if you're wrestling with doubt and wonder, Jesus is patient with you. But listen, if there's anything that these seven statements have told us is that he's also very direct. Stop doubting and believe. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He is the gate. He's the good shepherd who leads you by still waters to green grass. He's the way and he's the truth and he's the life. He is the true vine. There's nothing that you can do apart from him. And listen, he is the resurrection and he's the life. This is life-changing for us. This is comforting for us. And it's also costly at the expense of Jesus, but is given to us as a free gift. So stop doubting and believe. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for Christ and what he has done for us. That he is these seven things that he's proclaimed. That he is God in the flesh and that there is no way that we can come to the Father apart from him. God, this is good news for us. It's not that this is an exclusive, arrogant claim. This is good news for us because if it wasn't for Jesus, then we would be left hopeless. And there is no hope for us that we can return in relationship with you. He is the resurrection and he's the life. You're going to fully redeem us, God. May it reorient the completely the way that we live. May we not be the same people as we leave this room because of the news that Jesus is a resurrection and a life. May we stop doubting and may we believe. For those that have believed, may we remain. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.